We speak too much and feel too little. Don't give yourself to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life would be violent and all will be lost. Okay, welcome to another episode of Denusian, uh, where we nurture untamed and undomesticated conversations uh, surrounding the ideological illusions of mother culture in a humble and very hopeful attempt to co-create a more beautiful world. Um, I have with me uh, a uh, true mentor in my life, although he doesn't doesn't know it, uh, just from the the uh, description of our podcast, you can see uh, Charles Eisenstein and his beautiful soul and thoughts laced all the way through there. His book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, was a gift uh, to me from Daniela Howell, Daniela Barra Howell from the Savory Institute many, many years ago, right after it was uh, published. And it has been uh, a truly a bedside book, if you will, ever since. I, I draw on it quite often. And uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, Charles, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. And so today it, it is it is finally happening. And, and I want to thank you for being here. Yeah, well, thank you for, for such a nice welcome. Th- this conversation can go in so many different directions. Your, your authored uh, work uh, spans everything from climate um, to this, the book, the more, you know, the, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, which really gets down into the soul of the thing, in my opinion, the ascent of humanity and, and, and sacred economics, uh, book that I'm actually current work currently working through now. Um, and, and we'll see where the conversation goes, but just for our listeners who might not, not be familiar with your work, let, let's start, if you will, at the beginning, um, to me, when I think of, of, of you and a lot of the work that I've experienced, um, you know, we have these two divergent states, the state of separation, and I hope I say this correctly, and then the second state, the state of interbeing. Um, you know, what, what is that at a high level and, and, and um, just provide a little bit of a background for us? Yeah, like, okay, we could go there. Um, but I'm not sure if it's actually a good idea to start at the beginning because I didn't start at the beginning. Like these... Uh, abstract structuring principles I came to through a long inquiry. And I kind of think it can be a bit dry to start with the deepest metaphysics that we can muster. Like I didn't come to it that way. I came to it through um, uh, a series of, of experiences in many, many years of, of thinking um, and and the precipitating experience, though, was coming back from living abroad. I lived in Taiwan for my 20s, um, started having kids, came back to American suburbia. And it was nothing like the suburbia that I grew up in, where there were packs of kids running around playing outside all the time. Everybody was boxed into their houses. Neighbors barely knew each other. The, the, the playgrounds were more or less empty, except for an occasional two or three-year-old being pushed on the swing by their parent. And I was like, what happened here? And that, uh, as, as I investigated that question more and more deeply, I saw a link between that 
form of disintegration of community and everything else that I saw as wrong in the world from the, excuse me, from the medical system to the agricultural system to the political system, technology, money, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, oh, okay. All of these things are drawing from the same poisonous well of separation. And that's how I got into the metaphysical part of it. But I, I certainly didn't start there, right? Like it's all separation, separation from community, separation from lost parts of ourselves, separation from nature, the uh, separation of matter and spirit, separation of self and other, like all of these things are drawing from the same mythology, which, which also goes along with conquest. Because if you're separate from the world, then it is a competitor, it's a threat, or it's a bunch of random forces. So progress means exerting more and more control over this indifferent or hostile other. And so that's, then I, then I start asking, okay, how does that basic paradigm influence uh, farming, for example, or, or medicine? Uh, where is the the ideology of separation and control playing out? So that's that's where, um, yeah, that's 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 how I got into the more philosophical dimensions of it. Got it, got it. Yeah, let's let let's just continue that. Let's dive into that. So yeah. we're, we're talking about disintegration, the idea that you can only colonize that which you are apart from. If I understand what you just said correctly. Um, yeah. and this state of interbeing or, or, or the state of your childhood youth where the children played outside in, in, in the suburbs and, and, and they weren't boxed in their homes seems to be a very different state, right? A, a state that we cannot colonize or control or force or, uh, mechanize or industrialize or whatever word. Or monetize. Or monetize. Like no one, no one was paying for, for after-school daycare. You know, everyone kind of watched each other's kids. Yeah. Wow. So from a farming perspective, though, because that's what I know well, um, mm. from a farming and, and soil, and if we can use the term regeneration perspective, h- how is this dint- disintegration manifesting itself in modern life? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're all familiar. Like, so right now there's there's a transition happening in agriculture that that it's been building for years. And as the conventional system uh, works less and less well, more and more farmers are looking at uh, the assumptions that they've been enacting from maybe the time of their grandparents with, with you know, when the transition really got underway uh, into industrial agriculture. And, and so industrial agriculture, basically there's this um, uh, uh, paradise of total control where if you if you can perfectly control uh, every aspect of the soil uh, all of which is understood reductionistically if you have the exact right mix of nutrients and you can control exactly what plant grows in what place and you can control the genes of that plant then you will have perfect agriculture you will have higher and higher yields through more and more control. That's that's the governing paradigm. And when somebody is immersed in that way of thinking, then they will be naturally sympathetic to any new technological innovation, whether it's genetic modification or new pesticides, new herbicides, 
new insecticides, new fungicides, um, or even eliminating soil altogether to have absolutely controlled conditions in a hydroponics factory or precision fermentation vat. Like that's that that's the natural future of agriculture when you buy into the equation of progress equals control. What that leaves out is anything beyond our understanding, such as life itself. And it assumes that that if you release control, then everything just will kind of devolve into chaos. But what we are learning as uh, as our paradigms of control fail us and don't bring the promised paradise, but only bring more and more um, actually chaos that we need to impose more and more control on, then we start to question that whole paradigm. And that's what the transition in agriculture is about. That says, that says living soil, even if we don't fully understand it, is is going to bring us more wealth than perfectly controlled conditions. We don't have to control because there is an intelligence in nature. There's an intelligence in life. There's an intelligence outside of ourselves. And if we can participate in that intelligence, then we can be part of a flourishing that's much greater than what we could design and engineer and control on the world. So that's like the, I would say like the, um, intellectual underpinnings and, and of the change in agriculture. And again, it didn't start with that. It's not like a bunch of philosophers came up with these basic principles and said, okay, now we shall apply them to agriculture. It's again, kind of the other way around. It's like, gosh, this doesn't feel right anymore. Uh, this isn't working for me. And here's what is attracting me. And then you know, then maybe guys like me come in with a philosophical framework to say, yeah, you're not crazy for doing this. And your heart and your mind don't have to be in conflict because <clears throat> actually this is perfectly rational, perfectly sensible when we adopt a bigger understanding of life and order and intelligence. Do, do, do you think it's the same paradise for total control, utilizing your terminology here, that is this like cultural transitionary force that put, you know, life in rows and patterns and, and, and Petri dishes and everything else, but also children in boxes? Is this yeah. the same force? Same thing. Yeah. And the same paradise that says, you know, perfect health. How will we have perfect health? Well, it'll be through controlling every bodily process through con and how about perfect happiness? Uh, controlling, you know, the action of your neurotransmitters and a perfect society. Well, if we could monitor, surveil, and control the actions of every human being at all times, then we would eliminate crime. Uh, we would eliminate poverty. We would eliminate everything bad. If only we could put everything in a data set and administer it with uh, algorithms. Uh, that, you know, that that's... It's the same vision applied to different areas. Yeah. What? So you said the, um, you know, the when you release control, chaos doesn't ensue as as a negative force. What's the opposite of control? Right. So we have colonization, which is the depersonalization of life. You can only colonize that which you aren't. 
you know, that, that isn't you. So interbeing and oneness, we get the idea that, that, that you bring to us from that. But what, what's the, what's the opposite of control? If it's not chaos, what is it? Emergence, uh, self-organization. Um, which, which to me, yeah. if, if I can interject to me, these are very patient realities. Is that a yeah. word you're comfortable with using patient? Yeah. You, it's patience is part of it because you have to trust a process that you're not in control of. And sometimes it may have its own rhythm. And especially if we are uh, habituated to clock rhythms, which are industrial rhythms, which are control rhythms, like to clock time, mm. then the, the, the pace of nature's unfoldment can be um, uh, puzzling or uh, disturbing. You know, sometimes it happens fast, sometimes it happens slow, and we can't always predict it uh, or understand it even. Right. Although the more that we trust it, the more we develop an intuitive understanding of it. Your, 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 your response reminds me of a, a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson in his, in his essay on nature, which I'm sure you've read. He says, we must accept the pace of nature and our secrets and secret is patience. Patience mm -hmm. is the pace of nature. And that is something that we have to accept and not engineer or mechanize in any way to push it faster. There's, there's an essence there. There's, there's, I should say, there's a foundational understanding there that uh, process takes time and that time just happens to be patience and we can't manipulate that. Now, a lot of the feeling that we call impatience is an attempt to, to stuff things into linear clock time and into schedules. Because otherwise, like, why not let things take their own time? This, I, I, I've learned a lot about this from raising children, you know, where like a lot of the conflict when my, my older ones were little, I'd say like two thirds of the conflict that we had was because we had to be at a certain place at a certain time. Like, otherwise, why wouldn't I let Matthew spend half an hour putting on his shoes, you know, and getting distracted by something else? Well, that's no good because we have to be there for a circle, you know, at the Montessori school. So, yeah, and, and, and I don't know, I'm not advocating discarding clocks and with them, I mean, because clocks are the key invention that led to the Industrial Re Revolution. More fundamental than even the steam engine was the clock. Like all factories run by the clock, computers run by clocks. Right. You, you know, you can't have technology as we know it without clocks. However, the colonization of life by technology and the colonization of time by the calendar and the clock has gone too far. It's, it's, it's been this totalizing uh, tyrant that brings everything into its domain same with money. You know, it's not that, you know, you're reading sacred economics now. It's not that we shouldn't have money, but the domain of human relationships that have become monetized is too big and we need to reclaim some of those. So it's really this transition. It's not about rejecting anything actually, but it's about understanding what's its proper place. Yeah. I'm seeing these converging ideas. I mean, I've, I've never looked at it from this perspective, but Emerson's quote, the pace of nature is patience. 
patience is as much a part of nature as nature is or any other aspect Mm -hmm. that we might call natural. It it is equal to that. And so patience, like you're saying, it implies time, but but it's not like clocked time. It's not hurried time. Right. We live in time. The sun rises and sets in time. The time is some sort of relationship device. Right. As we mechanize it and control it, we make a distance to ourselves. Right. Is that what yeah, you're patience arguing? is simply <clears throat> patience is simply trust. Mm. Trusting it's to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Wow. That's patience that's, is trust. Yeah. It's a kind of a trust. Thank you for listening to this episode preview of Denusion with Charles Eisenstein. The full, unedited, an hour-long episode in its video is available on the Palo Network for members. You can become a member of the Palo Network for free at community.robiniainstitute.com. When you become a member, not only do you have access to the uncut and full versions of these conversations, but you also have the ability to build community, discuss these conversations with thoughtful peers, and much more. You can visit community.robiniainstitute.com to learn more. We'll see you there.